Amen. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? I love that new song. And a particular phrase in that song struck me, and that was, you know, where it's talking about revival, and it said, prophesy it like it's already happened, right? And the whole song is talking about a move of the Holy Spirit that is coming upon this earth that has been promised. It's been promised from the very beginning, has not happened yet. It's about to. And so I, I love that part of the song. We, we had this week, we've had some significant things happen in the Spirit. And I don't know how in tune you are with that or if you understand what I'm talking about, but Friday, obviously, we had an inauguration. We had a new president that was sworn in. And there was something happened when he placed his hand on the word of God and took an oath. And I want to share with you a vision. I didn't ask her if I could. I apologize. She said, no, I probably would share it anyways. (laughs) I want to share a vision with you that somebody, Shannon, had seen while this was happening. Shannon has, has had some some very interesting giftings manifest in her the last few weeks. And I won't go into that. But one of them, she has been able to, if you, if you understand what a seer is, the beginnings of a seer is being able to, to see into the spirit world. as Just like when Elijah, he could see in the spirit world, he told the Lord, he said, open my, my assistant's eyes so he could see what I see. See, Elijah saw into the spirit world, and he, now he saw it physically, eyes open, like, like we're sitting here right now. Am I getting feedback? I don't know what the deal is. Um, so, so he physically saw, and, and, and this gift that God had opened in Shannon a while ago was seeing into the spirit world, okay, with eyes closed. There's a difference when that shifts two eyes open, and, and that, that's happened recently. But the vision that she saw watching the TV as he was taking his oath and, and, and shortly after that was a vision of the Capitol. I don't know if you know this. The Capitol is the dead center of Washington, D.C. A lot of people think it's the Washington Monument or perhaps the White House or something else. It's not. It's, it's the Capitol building. It's the dead center, the way it was designed, dead center of Washington, D.C. And what she saw, and that's, of course, where all all these proceedings were taking place. What she saw was on top of the Capitol building, a principality sitting enthroned above the Capitol, which is not a surprise to us. Okay, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the government has been corrupt. Now, by the way, it has not been corrupt for eight years. It has been corrupt for decades. We have gotten away from what our government was intended intended to be, and that was 
something, you know, in terms of separation of church and state. It was never intended for the church not to be part of government. It was intended for the government not to govern the church. Okay, the reason they came over and started this little nation we call America is because they wanted freedom of religion from the government. But see, the second that was established, Satan went to work on it. He went to work to silence the very voices that would give voice to the Holy Spirit. And over time, he's been very successful in that. See, there's a problem, though. There's a problem because we are a very influential country in this world. Okay? And timing is such that if the Lord is going to bring a revival to the world, at this point, it really has to include the United States. Would you agree? Would you agree that the influence of the United States can bear on that revival, good or bad? And for years, what Satan has been able to do is influence government in such a way that their the, the, the influence that Christians have, the influence, not even that Christians have, I don't even like to use that. The influence that God has on our government has been diminished. Even if people have the right thoughts, it's been politically incorrect to talk about it. It's been politically incorrect to talk about the word of God as having authority, not just in my life, but in the world. Do you understand that? That I don't give place to the Bible and give it authority. It does not have authority simply because I give it authority in my life. It may have effect because I give it, a, I give it the effect in my life. I give it the, oh, that's why you're not hearing me. Hello. Okay, yeah, I guess I should put the microphone up, shouldn't I? Sorry. No, it won't stick. There. I, I, I couldn't figure out why do I sound so far away and I'm standing right here. Okay. So just because I give the Bible weight in my life does not give the Bible authority. The Bible has authority all by itself. The Bible has authority because it is God's breathed word. It's no different with the government. Because the government does not give it place in the government, does not take away the authority of the word of God. It doesn't take away the authority of God being the head of everything. Of God being right. So for this being the case, if this revival is truly coming like we sang about, like we believe, like has been prophesied, like has been shown in the word of God... If we really believe that, then you cannot escape the fact but to believe that the United States will play a big part in that. And it will. In fact, that's why it was born over 250 years ago, or whatever it was. Right? It was born for the simple fact that they wanted freedom 
to let God rule. So we come to this point in time, and I want to, I want you to understand, and, and, and I, get, I get the fact that there is so much turmoil about this. I want you to set aside the person for a second who, who took that oath. And I want you to understand the process of what happened and what God is doing in our country. See, the vision that she saw was this principality sitting on top of the Capitol building in black cloak, sitting there enthroned, which means he had authority over that city. He had authority over that mountain the Bible calls governments. But see, there was something happening. She said she could see his face, and his face looked confused and looked scared. And the reason he was confused and scared is because all surrounding the Capitol building were warring angels that were down on the ground, down on one knee, holding up these enormous bows and arrows aimed right up at him, and arrows were just being slung at him. I don't know about you, but when you put that picture in your mind, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter, but if you put, put that picture in your mind and understand that there is a battle going on that we do not see, you also have to understand that victory is at the door. See, for this revival to take hold, there has to be breaking of demonic authority. That's what's happening. That's what's happening not because of the people involved. God uses the people, but it's because God's timing is now. I want to share with you, though, how important it is for the church to raise up. See, we, and, and if you've been part of Ignition for any length of time, you know that, that we were told to pray, begin praying about this a year and a half ago. I think it was July or June or July of 2015. And actually, even told before that, in April, to begin praying about it. But we've taken an active role in this warfare, in this prayer for revival. Prayer for this country. Prayer for those mountains to be infiltrated by those who love Jesus Christ. And those who love his word and believe his word. We've been praying about that. Well, we prayed up through the election, obviously. And then the Lord revealed to us, as hard as you prayed then, you've got to pray even harder now. In this transition time. And so we did. We prayed hard. We continued taking it before the altar. In that transition time. But we've been brought to phase three. (laughs) See the Lord showed us. That we are not to just stop praying now. And kind of put it in his hands. And, And when I say his hands. I mean the government's hands. We are to go before the throne of God. Every day and pray that he has his will every day 
in the beginning of this new season. I say this isn't what I'm preaching on, I apologize. But this is important. And I know it's true because the Lord's laid it on so many people's hearts in this church. Lord spoke to Wendy yesterday about putting together a prayer team or a prayer every single day for the first hundred days of this new presidency. Because so many critical decisions are being made right now and will be made for the next 98 days. So I want to take a moment... And, and by the way, we'll get more information out on that. It will be a call that people can call into. How, ma- how many people can fit on that phone call? Okay, so we're good. <laughs> okay, we'll get information out. We're going to do this call every day. And, and if you get a chance and can be part of it, that's tremendous. Because unity is power. There is strength in unity. And unity of purpose, unity of mind. That's why the Lord simplifies everything. We don't have to go and specifically pray for all the different things that need to happen in the government right now. See, God says, that's way too hard. Let me worry about that. He said, just come before me and come in agreement and unity, saying that you want my will done on earth as I have it in heaven. It's just that simple. So we lay our lives down for him, and we let him do whatever he wants. What an amazing concept. We really don't have to make the tough decisions. Our only tough decision is to say, I agree with you, Lord, whatever you want. Now, it might be tough actually accepting what he wants (laughs) sometimes. But the decision part of his will is very easy to pray for. Lord, we want your will. So I want to take a moment right now and just go before the Lord because we're all together here this morning. And I believe we're all unified in the fact that we want his will. If you don't, I understand that. And that's okay. You notice I didn't lay out any particulars. See, we're unified in the fact that we want his will. So I'm going to go before the Lord right now and pray together, being unified together, and going before him and asking for his will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you. And we come before you as a church, all the people here and all the people on the line that see this, that are unified with this thought that we come before your throne as witnesses, as representatives of this nation, of your church body. We come before your throne in unity to say that we want your will. We ask for your will to be done on earth as you've written it in heaven. We ask for your will to be done in our government right now as as new things are being formed, new people are being appointed, new processes are being put into place.
As these things happen, God, we, we don't trust anyone but you. So we come before your throne in agreement to say, we want your perfect will for the United States of America. The will that you have written in heaven, we want done on earth. And so we stand before your throne in unity as witnesses to that fact. We trust you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you also to continue just praying that very thing. I want your will. Not just in the government, but in your own life. You want victory in your life? You want less confusion in your life? You want to understand God's purpose in your life? He said it very simply. Ask for my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It applies to absolutely everything. And not to oversimplify the Christian walk, but certainly our prayers, certainly our desire. We can lay that on him. So I encourage you to do that. We've been talking about the millennium. We've been talking about eternity and and what that looks like. And and I'm really going to do my best. I don't know that it'll happen, but I'm going to do I I have it written on my notes. Today is the conclusion. <laughs> okay. We'll see if we get there. But I I want to give you this this understanding of why we're going through this. We've been talking about the eternity, specifically about the thousand-year reign of Christ, right? We've been talking about what that's going to look like. And weeks ago, we talked about how we will be rewarded by how we allow the Lord to work through our lives here on earth. Those rewards are eternal. Remember, we, we went through some of the parables in Matthew. We talked about Second Thessalonians. We talked about the different times where, where we will receive rewards for what the Lord, what we allow him to do through us. Remember the wise servant, okay, in the, in the parable of the ten minas, where, where the, you, had, you had three servants each given a, a portion of money. You had one double his money. You had the next double their money, even though they were both different portions. Then you had the slothful servant that was driven by fear, who was afraid and hid the money, and did not invest it, did not manage it, did not steward it. And that servant was called slothful by the master. He didn't become an ex-servant, Okay, He was just not given the same reward as the other two. In fact, he was sent to a place that was unlike the other two. All right, and We talked about that. We went through that over a couple of weeks. That's not talking about hell. That Well, that was, that was the servant that was, was disobedient, really wasn't saved, and so he sent him to hell. That's not what it, that's not what it said. The servant was the servant. And we've talked about how these rewards are eternal, but they're based on what Jesus Christ does in our lives and what we allow him to do in our lives. And it's also not about works. It's not about me deciding, okay, well, I want a reward in heaven, so I'm going to go start a church. I'm going to lead people to the Lord. I'm going to go bang on doors. 
I remember when I was in high school. <laughs> if you can imagine a junior in high school, I, I, was, I was crazy in love with the Lord, but I was in legalism, right? And, and so if you can imagine a junior in high school coming up to your door, knocking on the door and you opening the door and, and, and basically telling you that you're going to go to hell because you don't know the Lord. Okay, I was trying, I was striving to please the Lord through works. I was striving to please the Lord by what I could do, right? That's not what he's talking about. That's not where rewards come from. The works are an after effect of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So what we are really judged on as Christians, remember there are two judgments. There's Bema Seat, which is where Christians will be judged. It's really more of a reward ceremony. Don't think of it as judgment in that way. And then there's Great White Throne, which that's one we don't want to be at. Okay, That's where the world is judged and those, those who did not accept Christ, whose name is not written in the book, Lamb's Book of Life, go to hell. Okay, so in, in this reward ceremony, it's based on one thing. Your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your intimacy with Jesus Christ. How much you truly let his will be done in you as he wrote it in your book before you were ever born. See, that's what we're going to be judged on. That's what our rewards are going to be based on. Not what he finally does through us. The fact that we started a church, the fact that we lead people to the Lord, the fact that we do these things, those are what we call fruits. Okay, because we're, we're the branch, we're, we're grafted into the vine, and he is going to produce fruit through us because we trust him. So the fruit is not what we're judged on. You can have a person who comes to know Jesus Christ in, in the most remote place in the world, and they have the same opportunity for rewards that anyone else has, that Billy Graham has, because it's not based on the result of the relationship. It's based on the relationship itself. And that's what he wants us to understand. And, and, and so, so we're, we're talking about this, this millennial uh, paradise. You know, when, when, we, when we're taken away from here and we spend, uh, I, went, I went through all this, we spend some time uh, with him while the world's going through judgment. And then we come back when Jesus Christ comes back and he begins this millennial reign. That is an earthly reign we talked about last week. We said it won't look so different than what you might think. It's, it's, it, we're going to be in the same earth. In fact, this earth will have gone through some pretty incredible change. Okay? A third of the earth will be destroyed by a single asteroid. Now, I don't know what destroyed means. Obviously, it could be rebuilt because we're going to be here. But it's going to be a little different than what it looks like right now. But remember, the technology will not be different. The growth will not be different. It will be the world as we know it, except extracted from the world is Satan. 
His influence will no longer be on the earth. He will be bound during the millennial period. So you can imagine as we come back with the Lord and we're given these places of authority based on our relationship with him right now, we come back and we help him literally rebuild this world. How cool is that? See, why am I even talking about this? Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, it's whatever we do in heaven. It's because maybe, maybe it's for my sake. Because me growing up, I used to think, I had a very myopic view of, of the afterlife. I mean, I knew it would be perfect. It would be paradise. God said it would be paradise. And, you know, he said to the thief on the cross, don't worry, today you will be with me in paradise. But I thought, you're just floating around and kind of doing nothing and, Okay, Lord, I guess that'll be fun. Doesn't seem like fun. And so, as I began to understand what the afterlife looked like, of course it's not just that. It is worship. It's worship all the time. We'll be with him. We'll recognize him. We'll know who he is. We'll begin to learn what he did for us on the cross. But there will be intent in our lives. We will have purpose. And that purpose is really not much different than it is here on this earth. It's to draw close to him in intimacy and let him do whatever he wants. Whatever he wants through us. So, so again, we, we laid down the concept that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that as, as Christians... You know, in this lifetime, when we have to live by faith, we can build up these rewards. Okay, but we can also lose rewards. We talked about that. I don't want to go through those scriptures again. If you want, you can go back and watch the, uh, watch the podcasts. But, but we can lose those rewards. It's all based on our intimacy with him. It's all based on do we allow him to do his will in our lives. But I do want to give one more vision, if you will, of what I believe the millennium is all about. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Romans eight twenty nine. I'm going to read 29 and 30. And I want you to notice something here. Remember that, that salvation is broken down into three Phases, if you will, if you want to call them phases. There's justification. That is what we think of as salvation. That's when we accept Jesus Christ into our heart. That's when we believe the gospel, right? That is our justification. We become justified by faith. We do not do anything to earn that. He does everything 100% by grace. All we do is accept and invite. Okay, That's our justification. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then we go through a process the Bible calls sanctification. That is where we develop our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and our walk with him. And we literally, it's about getting to know him. That's what sanctification is. It's about getting to know him. And then the third phase is glorification. Glorification comes when we, it's when we're out of this life. 
glorification, and, and I'm not going to get into this too much, but I am going to say something a little bit new this morning. Glorification, as we understand it, is a glorified body, right? We're given a glorified body upon this body's expiration, right? We're given a new body. And, my, you know, I don't know what age, I don't know, I just know I'll look good. No matter what, and for eternity. All you people worried about how you look, for eternity you will look good. Okay? So that's the glorified body, but it, it's not just that. And this is something a little bit new to me in realization out of the Word of God. Glorification is also a graduation, if you will. We, we receive our glorified body immediately. But the glorification of our relationship with Jesus Christ depends upon our sanctification process. You cannot fully become glorified in Jesus Christ without having the sanctification, without having the relationship. Although you can go to heaven without the relationship. Do you understand that? The thief, he didn't have a relationship He had literally trusted Christ on the cross. Now, he did as much as he could in the few hours that he had. And the Bible doesn't tell us. Perhaps they had other conversations. I don't know. But he certainly lacked time. Okay? But our glorification depends upon our sanctification. But I want to read this because you're going to notice something that is missing in this verse, in these verses, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. This is talking about Jesus Christ and the predestined is by foreknowledge. He foreknew because he foreknew he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the father speaking. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's missing there? Sanctification. See, sanctification is missing there for one reason. He doesn't do that. Sanctification is the only part that we are responsible for. See, we're responsible for our relationship with Jesus Christ. He will never force it on you. With our justification, when we accepted Jesus Christ into our heart, He did everything. In our glorification, we don't have to do anything to receive a new glorified body. Boom. We just get it. Right? But sanctification, that is up to us. Because it's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about how much we learn to trust Him on this earth when we cannot see Him and we accept Him by faith. So see, that part is up to us. That's why He came up with this reward package, if you will. This incentive to draw close to him. Now, to me, 
What is, what is the incentive to draw close to him? If you're doing it for the rewards, you've got a problem. Because what the Bible says is he is the reward. He's the reward, the little, literal reward of being able to be with him in the millennial kingdom. Remember, Jesus is a man. He's 100% God. He is 100% man. But when he came and became a man, he gave up several things. That's why when he was risen from the dead and brought up to heaven, ascended to God, that's why God gave him all power and authority. See, he gave that up. He gave that up when he became a man. That's why when he died for the sins of you and me, God had to give it to him. It was not already his because he gave it up. But there are several things that he gave up that are eternal or at least through the thousand year reign. I believe them to be eternal. One of those things is being omnipresent. See, one of those things is the fact that he is in a man's glorified body, even as we speak. The same glorified body that you and I will have. Now, the Bible talks about in the thousand-year reign of Christ that he will come down and the temple will be built in Jerusalem. Now, by the way, not where the temple is right now, because what's about to happen to Jerusalem at the end of the, uh, of the tribulation really kind of destroys Jerusalem as we know it. That's why after the millennium, God builds or creates a, a new Jerusalem is created, right? So he, this temple is not built in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ, when he steps on the mount, it will, it, just this massive earthquake will happen and it will divide Jerusalem into threes and basically destroy the city. So, so what the Bible talks about, there's only, there's one temple that is shown that we will be built in the millennium. There will be a temple in the millennium. This will effectively be the fourth temple. Okay, you have Solomon's temple which was the first. You have Herod's temple, which was destroyed in AD 70, which we've read about. The third one has not been built yet. It will be built for the tribulation, because that's part of the, the pact, if you will, between Israel and the Antichrist. Again, I'm not going to get into all that, but that'll be the third one. That'll be destroyed. The fourth one is the one that we read in Ezekiel, and Ezekiel talks about the millennial kingdom temple. And, and it lays it out, and, and it, it's got this, I, I should have put a picture up there for you, but, but it's, it's like all of the other temples, except it's huge. The, the land mass that the, the temple sits on is 50 miles by 50 miles. It's big, right? Okay? Now, now, the building itself is not that big. Okay? The building itself where Jesus sits and everything else. Okay? But this is physically where his throne is going to be, the throne of David. This is not metaphoric, although there are metaphoric things that apply to it, as Ezekiel talks about, and I'm going to get into here in a minute. But this is a physical reign of Jesus Christ. This will become the center of the world. We talked about it last week, how the nations of the world will come to 
the, the temple to be taught. They'll be taught how to live. They'll be taught how to trust God, how to trust Christ. Right? And the kings of the earth that do not come, remember we talked about last week, that choose to not come and, and pay homage, what happens? They don't receive rain. Okay, so, so there are effects in the, in the millennium. There, there's, there's, don't, don't think of the millennium as, well, there's nothing ever negative that's going to happen. That's not true. Because the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is the earth, same way that we know it, except with Jesus Christ himself in rule. Jesus Christ himself, king over the entire earth. See, it's in that way I would ever vote for a globalized government. <laughs> right? Everybody pushes for this one world government, right? And, and all that. Or so much of the world pushes for that. I'm okay with that when Jesus rules. Because he said he will rule the entire earth from that place, from that temple. Well, I want you to notice something that's a little bit unique, and I'm not, I'm not going to get too deep into this because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just a huge study. It's a huge study, and, but I want to give you a taste and, and perhaps urge you to go look at this on your own. And, and the temple, the, the millennial temple in Ezekiel is from, from chapter 40 through, I believe, 44. Okay, and a lot of it's kind of dry reading. And, and you, you understand a lot of it's normal temple stuff and everything else. But there's a few things in there that are different. And there's one thing I want to point out to you today. It's called the Gizra. G-I-Z-R-A-H. The Gizra is a, a room within this temple. This is a physical room. It's a real room. Okay? It has real uses but then it also has metaphoric you know, ways to apply it as well. But the Gizra, I want to read to you just something about this Gizra, what, what, what the word means. Okay? This, this Gizra, G-I-Z-R-A-H, is located right behind the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is literally the center of the temple where Jesus Christ will sit on his throne. Right? This is a building behind the Holy of Holies. Okay? According to Strong's, uh, you know, Hebrew word and Greek, Hebrew and Greek, the Gizra is a separate place or, quote, a figure or a person who is cut out. It is a separate enclosure. It comes from the root word gezer which means a portion cut off. And the primitive root, gazar, which means to exclude. You getting a picture of what this room is about? It's a Hebrew noun based on the roots of the Hebrew word gazara, which means to divide, to portion off, or to cut away. This is a real room, and the meaning of it is separation. The meaning of it is to be cut off. This place is a profane place, the Bible talks about. 
The Gizra is called the profane place in Ezekiel chapter 42, verse 20. This room that, by the way, this is also not a normal room in the fact that it's cut off in ways you might not think. First of all, it's completely enclosed, and the walls are five feet thick. Why do you need walls five feet thick inside the structure? Just an interesting side note. I'll tell you why in a minute. The Hebrew word for profane is kol, C-H-O-L, which means something that is exposed and common, opposed to something that is sanctified and holy. Kol is from the root word kalal, which means, and this is a Hebrew word, which means to break one's word, to pollute, or to defile one's inheritance. I want you to get a feeling of what's being built here, what, what, an understanding of what this room represents. Could this Gizra... I'm going to just lay this out for you. Remember in Matthew, we taught, we went through those three parables. Only three places in the Bible where it talks about the servant being sent to the outer darkness. Okay? And we went through that. I won't go through it again, but that's not talking about hell. Because the outer darkness literally means in the Greek, the place of less light. Doesn't mean darkness. Doesn't mean you can't see anything. It's the place of less light. Literally sent away from the master in proximity to where he is. Are what those three talk about. Could this Gizra be what the Bible talks about in those three parables? As that place where they're sent away. That place that is in proximity, but where the light does not affect it. See, it says, it says that in the millennial temple, in, in the millennial reign of Christ, that Jesus will give off this amazing light. But see, that light is stronger as you are closer to him and is weaker as you get further away from him. Do you remember Revelation? Revelation 3, verse 12 said, and this is talking about the church of Philadelphia, who, who, who uh, uh, loved the Lord with, with their whole hearts. And he said, to those who conquer, I will make you pillars in my temple. What temple is he talking about? He's talking about the millennial temple. He's talking about this temple that, that's written about in Ezekiel. I will make you pillars of that temple. If, if what? If you conquer. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar. What does that mean? Well, the word there, the, the Greek word for pillar means foundational support. I will make you a foundational support of my millennial temple, my millennial leadership of the kingdom... If you conquer, if you conquer. So this concept of the outer darkness, I wanted to read a quote. Michael Huber, he, he, he's a, a theologian from Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote an art, article called The Concept of the Outer Darkness. 
And this is what he said. The term outer darkness appears nowhere else in the New Testament outside of the three verses mentioned in those three parables in Matthew. Matthew 8, 22, and 25. However, it does occur 20 times in the Septuagint version of the Bible and is always in relation to Ezekiel's temple. Is that wild? Always in reference to Ezekiel's temple. That shows the connection of what's going on here. It shows the connection of what that room is all about. I'm going to submit something to you. We know we studied before that, that when we are intimate with Jesus Christ, when we let him do what he wants to in our lives, then one day we stand before the beam of seat of Christ. We, we will be judged upon that. And from the, those things, we will receive rewards. And the Bible talks about many rewards. The Bible says that they're eternal rewards. But some of those rewards, what it refers to is the placement of honor in his millennial kingdom and beyond. Right? The Bible talks about thrones. The Bible talks about that, that we will have the, the opportunity to judge angels in his millennial kingdom. Those who are rewarded from a sanctified life on this earth will be placed in a position of authority in his kingdom. This is not Jesus Christ just ruling everything and there's no authority underneath him. That's what I want you to understand. This is the earth as we know it, except without Satan. Jesus couldn't possibly do that himself. One man could not even communicate enough to do all that himself. So I want you to understand that's why he puts people in place of authority. To work in his millennial kingdom. And those places of, of authority are based on our sanctification process right here, right now. I tell you, you want to invest in a career? <laughs> invest in your millennial career. Invest in what God does, wants to place you in, in his millennial kingdom. Because that's, that's eternal. Now, I know the millennial kingdom is a thousand years, but God said the rewards are eternal. If you want to invest in something on this earth, you invest in what will reap forever. And that draws us back to that relationship with Jesus Christ. That relationship is what we have to invest in because that is what we will be judged for. Now, what about those who don't? Why did I bring up the Gizra? See, I believe that this outer darkness, when somebody loses their rewards, as it talks about in Matthew, when somebody loses their rewards because they did not build a relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't go to hell. You never lose your justification. 
Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 promises that because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But you can lose the reward. So what happens? He said, he said, go slothful servant into the outer darkness. See, this Gizra, it holds no physical use. It's, it's to make new something that has been damaged. And, and you certainly don't need five foot thick walls to keep some artifacts in that you use in the temple. See, there is an understanding here of placement in God's kingdom for his children. And that placement depends on your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's an ominous thought. It's an ominous thought because sometimes it's just enough to hang on to sanity in this life. How in the world can I worry about rewards when I'm just barely hanging on? I'm just barely hanging on to anything that I have that has some sense of sanity to it. It's because there has to be a paradigm shift in our lives. See, that paradigm shift is understanding that we can't do anything. And he never expected us to do anything. He doesn't give us a list of things and say, here, go accomplish this. In fact, he promises that if we let him do it, then we reap the benefits of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, all the fruits of the Spirit. So he says, all you have to do is focus on me. That's it. Focus on me. Pursue me. And by the way, when you do that, I'm going to stretch you. Because the only thing that pleases me in this process is that you do it by faith. See, that's why this life is so important. Because when we're in heaven or in the millennial reign of Christ, then he no longer is something we just have to accept by faith. Because we could see him. We'll see him on TV. He'll give his address on TV. Don't think we won't have TV. There won't be all of a sudden these monitors in the sky. <laughs> See, right now we accept him by faith. Faith is what pleases him. Faith is what grows our relationship with him. And if we do not go through a sanctification process here, please understand, you can't skip that process. Okay, you cannot skip the process of having a relationship, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are justified in order to you, for you to eventually become glorified, and I'm not talking about the glorified body. I'm talking about glorified into eternity. There has to be the sanctification process. If you don't go through it here, you will go through it in the millennium. 
That's what this is talking about. That's what the Gizra is for. It's not that you just have to go stand in a room with five-foot-thick walls. That's not what it's talking about. But God will place you in a way in his millennial kingdom that you have to trust him, that you have to learn to seek him, to trust him, to know him. Well, Greg, why is that true? It's because it's what he died for. He didn't just die for this world to to get closeness with a few. Because, see, he would have died for me if it was just me. He would have died for you if it was just you. So what he wants and demands... And by the way, I'm talking about the Father. When he sent his Son, what the Father demands is relationship with every one of us. So there's that process of sanctification that we have to go through. Don't think that when you... I'll just kind of live my life how I want to here now, because when I get to heaven, well, I'll be given the mind of Christ, and and I'll know everything then, and, and it'll all be good. I'll just love him then. Where do you see that in the Word of God? See, I don't see it anywhere in the Word of God. All I see in the Word of God is getting to know Him as a process. Getting to know Him is about giving up our will and letting His will be prevalent in our, in our lives. That's all I see. What makes you think that's any different than when we're with Him in the Millennial Kingdom? It's not. Trust me. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you will go through a sanctification process, either here or in the Millennial Kingdom. See, the difference is, the Millennial Kingdom does not come with reward, simply because it's not done by faith, or at least the faith that we have here where we cannot see. So what I believe the millennial kingdom and, and this, this temple represent, and specifically this room, this Gizra represents, is a placement of authority. A placement literally in proximity. The Bible talks about when you, when you research the uh, Revelation 20 and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all these books that talk about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, it all points to proximity of the king. Our proximity to him, our access to him. Revelation chapter, I think it's 20, toward the end of the end of the chapter talks about talks about living this life of sanctification and therefore having access to Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. See, you can be with somebody which he he promises In paradise, we will be with him. See, I can be in a room with Donald Trump and a thousand other people and not have access to him. That's what it will be like in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. 
Those who are given access to him are given positions of authority, thrones of authority that will have access to him are because of the rewards we're given from this life. Our sanctification in this life. That's why if, if, I, could, if I could beg you to do one thing, it's allow God to change your paradigm about this world. See, we fight not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities. And the way we fight, we allow God to fight through us is this relationship. If you can develop the paradigm in your life that that relationship is paramount over everything, over every decision, over everything you go through, over every feeling, then I promise you, I promise you, that will lead you down the right road to access to him in the millennial kingdom. Why? Because he says it. It's just that simple. Think about it in your own life. Who do you want to hang around? You want to hang around people that want to be with you. You want to hang around people that love you. That have shown allegiance to you. Why is Jesus Christ any different? Why would he be any different in the millennial reign? He wouldn't be. Doesn't mean he doesn't love everybody. His love is perfect for every single one. But see, it boils down to relationship. Our relationship is with the Father through his Son because he is our mediator as facilitated by the Holy Spirit. See, the Father, he doesn't get that relationship if we're not closely walking with Jesus Christ. And trust me, he did not give up his Son to just get a few. He did not give up his son and have his son purchase your life on the cross when you accepted him. He did not give up his son to do that to get maybe six out of ten or even less. He will have relationship with every single one of us. But that relationship has to come from our reaching out to him. You know, the Bible says if we take a step toward him, he takes a step toward us. It doesn't say he takes a step toward us and then we take a step toward him. See, and that, by the way, it's, that's not talking about justification. That's talking about sanctification. In our relationship with him, we have to make the first move. And we have to continue that. Now, when we do that, man, he dives in full force. You want to get to know him, take a step toward him. He'll meet you there. And he'll say, here, I reveal this about me. And then you want, to, you want to press in deeper. And then he reveals more. That's sanctification. What is sanctification? It's a purifying. It's a purifying of our mind. I want to read one more verse to you. And clearly I'm not going to finish this today. 
We will finish next week, though, I promise. I want you to turn to Romans 12. And we'll end with this. Romans 12, we're called to action in this life. Verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, what does that mean? Go lay on an altar and... uh, No. (laughs) What does it mean to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? See, it's all about your focus. I can either say this body is mine, or I could say it's yours, Lord. See, if I declare that it's his, then I have to be careful what I put into it. I have to be careful what I take into my eyes, what I take into my ears, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, right? So if, if I offer my body as a living sacrifice, it is literally saying, God, I want to take in what you want me to take in. I ask that you protect the rest. And this is a daily thing. It's not a one-time decision. It is a lifetime process of laying your your bodies down, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Verse 2. Then he says, once you have done this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect will. See, we're not to be conformed to this world, but what? transformed. Transformed from what? When we accept Jesus Christ into our hearts and we begin this relationship with him, we're not transformed in that justification process. We're not transformed as a person when we accept Jesus Christ into our heart. Our heart, our soul, our spirit is covered by the Holy Spirit in that way. But our transformation comes when we daily lay our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. It is sanctification. It is the purifying of our lives and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in this life. When you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, then he says, I just got one thing that you have to worry about. Transform your mind. Let me transform your mind. So as you seek Jesus Christ in relationship, ask him to do just that. Ask him to transform your paradigms to understanding who he is and what it means to have relationship with him. And by the way, this begins with knowing how much he loves you. If you cannot understand how much Jesus Christ loves you, not just all of us in general, but you specifically. If you can't understand how much he loves you, that's the first hurdle you have to get over. 
That's the first paradigm that you need to pray that he changes in your mind, is knowing that he would have died for you if it was just you. That's not just a cliche. That's the truth. Why? Because he loves you. You have to understand he loves you before you can develop a relationship with him. Otherwise, you're going to spend your whole time saying, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of this relationship. And since I'm not worthy, you know what? Sin lasts for a season, so I'll go have a good season. See, when we don't understand how much he loves us, the enemy can jump in there and say, then why are you even trying? So ask him to show you. Ask him to change your paradigm in understanding how much he loves you. He cares for you. He desperately loves you. And from there, a whole new world opens up. A whole new relationship opens up. He begins to reveal himself in ways you won't expect. He'll shock you one day when he speaks to you. Whoa, you mean that's part of the relationship? That, that he'll actually speak with me? Yeah. He wants intimacy. Intimacy doesn't happen without communication. Closeness in relationship with Jesus Christ does not happen without two-way communication. So seek him and trust him. And I want to encourage you to do it now. We don't know how much time we have on this earth. Nobody knows. We just know that in the time that we're given and the time that we have left, he wants us to get to know him. And and by the way, don't let the enemy tell you, well, you've already been doing this for so long, so, so, you know, it's it's just a waste now. Because you've, you've already screwed up so bad that you're not going to get any rewards anyways. That's a lie. That is a lie. If that were the case, then man, I've wasted 50 years. (laughs) But it's not the case. See, paradigms can be changed in a moment. It's not about length of time that you serve the Lord. It's about understanding who he is. There are things that we got to get in this life. And it's all about understanding who he is. Now there are some things you can't get to in relationship with him without purity in your life. Because A lack of purity, when we have sin in our lives, it literally puts up a barrier between us and Jesus Christ. That's what those five foot thick walls are. It's a barrier. It's a barrier from his glory. It's a barrier from his presence. That's what it is when we're in relationship with him and we sin. Known sin. We place that barrier there. And have you ever tried to talk to somebody through a wall? (laughs) It doesn't work so well. And the thicker that wall gets, the more impossible it becomes. 
So if you truly want sanctification in this life, that comes with all the rewards that we talked about, but it's about getting to know Jesus Christ and getting things out of the way that keep you from knowing him. And I get it. Sometimes sin is really hard to get beyond. I lived a life of it. And it's not about conquering that sin. I just desperately need you to understand that. It's not about that, well, I, I okay, I, I finally built up the strength to say no. Well, if that's what you're basing it on, give it a couple days. You won't be saying no anymore. And then you just go into this discouragement cycle that you're unworthy. All of that is lies. But when you go to him and and you seek him and you say, Lord, I understand I'm not fighting anything in the flesh, but I'm fighting the literal enemy on this. I need your help. He doesn't help you by just fixing it. He helps you by showing who he is. He helps you by showing in relationship with him his attributes. I can tell you from personal experience, the closer I walked with him, the things that I dealt with no longer were, they just, they literally faded away. Because what I saw bigger than the desire to do that sin was the fact that I would not be able to be in fellowship with him. The closer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize how sin breaks his heart. For the very reason that it puts up the barrier. And remember, his whole desire is just to be with us. And that's the barrier that keeps him from being with us. So just seek him. Trust him to fight that in you. But above all else, ask him to change your paradigm on how much he loves you. Help you to understand you are precious to him, no matter what. Even in your sin. You are precious to him. Let's pray.